How many of you have one of these in your house? By show of hands, how many of you, maybe your parents or your grandparents had one of these bad boys in their house? The old recliner. Now, interestingly, the concept of the recliner has been around for 450 years. Queen Elizabeth I is the first person we know of that had some type of a recliner. She had a cushion, she would sit and she would talk to, I mean, she was a queen, she'd talk to peasants. And so her back would hurt. And so they used a spring to create a cushion that could recline back and go forward. And so for about 450 years, it was primarily kings and queens and royalty that had recliners until 1959, a, day, a guy named David Coldmeyer, he worked for NASA. He used some of that technology to create what we know of as the recliner. And there is something about the recliner that is just so nice because it's comfortable when you do this, but then you go into full sport mode, ah, oh, and you go all the way back. And this is a hard position to beat, just in life in general. It's incredibly comfortable. You could take a nap. My grandfather had one of these, these exact type of chairs in his living room. It was kind of an odd setup. So we would go to my grandmother and grandfather's house. In their living room with the TV, there was only two chairs. There was one like this and then one next to it and nothing else. And so my grandfather would sit in his chair and my grandmother would sometimes sit in that chair. And there was like, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Uh, and my grandfather rarely got out of the chair. So we'd be in the other room doing birthday cake and doing celebrations and grandpa would still be in the chair. He'd just be sitting there watching TV. And you sit in the chair and you realize why. Because it's physically difficult to get out of this chair. I understand why they make chairs that push you out of them because even right now, I'm like, I'm not sure if I will ever get up. I might just die here. But you start to sit here and you get really comfortable and there's a natural tendency when you're in the seat to start to ask other people to do things for you. <laughs> my kids do this. My kids will sit on the couch and their drink will be at their feet and they will say, hey, daddy, can you hand me my drink? It's right there. And I will look at them and I will say, will you get off your lazy rear end and get your own seat? Get your, your drink is right there. And then a few days later, I would be laying on the couch like this and my kids would walk by. And I would say, hey, will you get me a drink out of the refrigerator? And they will turn to me and they will say, do you remember what you told me a few days ago? Will you get off your lazy rear end and get yourself your own drink? But this is a comfortable chair to sit in, but it's also a posture that we can sometimes have. You ever notice that when people watch sports, if they watch from a chair like this, they tend to not just watch sports, but they also tend to complain about sports. It's easy to be watching your favorite sports team and something that is empowering about the recliner is you decide, I know everything wrong with our sports team. And if they would just give me a call and they would pick my brain, I could solve this problem. And then you just complain to people about all the different things. It happens in sports. It can happen in politics. If you ever watch the news in a chair like this, the news only shows bad news. There is no such thing as good news on the news. And so you watch enough news and eventually you're sitting in a chair just like this one and you begin to complain. And complaining is such a natural human tendency. It's hard to get out of this chair. It's a natural human tendency. We have a hard time 
realizing things to be grateful for, but in easy time, complaining. A week ago, it was Mother's Day, and for Mother's Day, I did all the work for Mother's Day in my family. And that's not, that's not a brag, that's just the honest truth. If you are married and you don't have kids yet, and someday you're gonna have kids, let me just give you some advice. Uh, it is your job on Mother's Day to provide the gift and the stuff. And, you, and you're thinking to yourself, well, it's not my mother. Why would I do that? And it doesn't matter. So until some point in life, and I don't know what that point is. I'm not there yet. But at some point in life, it transitions to being your kid's job. Right now, I'm at the stage where it's my job. And so last week, I had all the things. We had, we had this cool box that I bought. When, when my wife opened it, little pretend butterflies flew out and we got this gardening thing that I put together. And so, so then I sit down, I got the gift that went inside the box. So I sit down with the kids and said, here's all you've got to do. Okay, you, you're going to write a card that's being thankful to your mom. And then I'm going to make a handwritten certificate because in talking to your mom, she really wants two things from you. She would like you to help her garden today. So you're going to spend the day creating the garden and gardening with mom. And then she would also like you to clean her car. And so I'm going to write these things out like a contract. And you're going to sign your name. We're going to put it inside the box. And that's going to be part of your gift. And one of my kids, who will remain nameless, <laughs> turns to me and begins to complain about the fact that they will have to both garden and clean out the car. And then this phrase came out of their mouth. They said, what does mom ever do for me? <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was in just shock and disbelief. I, I, I was like, what did you just say? And they said, I, I mean, no one does things for me. I don't get a day where everybody serves me all day. And so why do we have to serve mom all day? Nobody ever does this for me. And I mean, my mind is just wanting to explode. I, I said to them, do you understand the words that are coming out of your mouth? You think there's a magical fairy that fills the food into our house and makes you lunch and makes you dinner and brings you to all the places? Like the whole year revolves around you. This is one day for you to give back to your mom. I mean, like, I, I can't legally kick my kid out of the house, but I was that close. I was just, I mean, I was just, just boggled my mind. You realize that sometimes we can be so focused on ourselves that we miss what everybody else is doing. You see, in my experience in life, there are really two different categories of people. There are people who complain and there are people who do something. You ever notice that? There's people like to complain about problems and then there are those people that actually go and try and fix the problems. And oftentimes the people doing something are not the people that are complaining about said thing. We see it in scripture as well. One of the most famous stories, probably the most famous story in scripture outside of Jesus is David and Goliath. The famous moment is when David defeats Goliath, but what's interesting in the chapter is what happens before that. That Goliath comes out, you got both armies are lined up and basically Goliath says, hey, let's not fight the armies, let's just mano y mano, one on one. You send out one person, I fight them. If I win, we win. If your person wins, you win. 40 
days, Goliath goes out and taunts Israel. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 16. It says, for 40 days, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And so then David shows up. He's just a kid. He's just a shepherd. Checking in on his older brothers who are part of the army. And then he sees Goliath make the declaration. And he says, guys, why don't we do something? David's just kind of flabbergasted. He says, why doesn't someone do something? And then guess what? His older brother starts to complain about David. He says, oh, great. David, you should be off shepherding. You're just so egotistical that you would show up and make this about you. And what does David end up doing? He defeats the Goliath. He defeats the giant. Why? David was willing to do something. And as a result, he defeated the giant. Another famous story is the 12 spies. 12 spies, they go, they're almost in the promised land. The nation of Israel is coming out of captivity in Egypt. They're just a few days journey from the promised land. They send out the, the spies, the spies come back. They start to give a bad report. 10 of the 12 spies say, we can't do it. And they start to grumble and complain, which means that everybody else starts to grumble and complain. And then in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, it says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. What was Caleb saying? Both Joshua and Caleb, they were saying that they were willing to do something. And because they were willing to do something, they ended up entering into the promised land. Everybody else in the nation of Israel, they grumbled and complained. And what did God say? God said, I will do to you the very things I heard you speak. You grumbled and complained. You said that you might as well roam around in the desert. And so I will let you roam around in the desert. And none of them entered into the promised land. You see, there's a natural human response of complain, complain, complain. Look at the negative, look at the negative, look at the negative. And yet what God is calling us to do, who God is calling us to be is a people that do something about the brokenness in the world that we see around us. A giant of the faith died this week, a guy named Tim Keller. If you've never listened to Tim Keller, brilliant preacher, communicator. He's also an amazing author. Everything that Tim Keller has ever done, I recommend. I mean, he's just one of those guys that's incredible. He passed away, but in one of his books, talking about work and the importance of work, this is what he said. He said, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. You pause right there and man, that's, that's a depressing phrase. Pretty fatalistic. Everything you do is worthless. No matter what you do, it's gonna all end up meaning nothing anyway. And that is true, but the word here says unless. That's all true unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. It's saying that if you would use your life, the life that God has given you for God, then it allows your life to be bigger 
than you. If I use my life not just for me, not just for my thoughts, my opinions, my pleasure, but instead I give my life away, then God can use the life that he has given me to make an eternal impact in the world around me. What I do in this life doesn't just disappear, temporary. Instead, it echoes for all eternity. This same concept is what Paul picks up in a very famous verse in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul recognizes that the most value that we can get in this life, counterintuitively, is to not live for ourselves, is to focus on others. And by doing that, God can exponentially maximize the time that he has given me. There are people inside of our church walls that every Sunday, instead of just complaining, instead of just sitting out, they are doing something. That everything that happens in this room and outside of this room is because of volunteers that are willing to give time from production to kids ministry to youth ministry. On Monday and Tuesdays with manna ministry, there are so many people, giants of our faith, that don't just sit out and complain, comfortable, but they do something. One couple that lives out that life is a couple named Corey and Lori, Corey and Laura Lee. You might see them all over the place in manna and kids ministry. And we wanted to take a moment to spotlight through a video, a testimony of who they are and all they do. Let's listen. I'm Corey Fryer. This is my wife, Laura Lee. And uh, we've been attending Cherry Hills Community Church for approximately eight years. This is our second home. So whatever needs to be done, um, we've told several departments, if you ever need help and you just need volunteers, Corey and I will make time to help you out. Our first volunteer uh, opportunity was MANA. MANA is a two-day operation every week. There's the setup crew and the stocking crew, which is Monday. Monday, Lori and I, along with several other uh, retired people, get here early, uh, 7.30 to 8 o'clock. Uh, and we're in charge of starting it all off. The racks are stored uh, in the kitchen in the back. We bring the racks out. We actually set up a mini grocery store. The need the manna uh, is filling is just growing. Our favorite thing about manna is that we know that the next day, so many people are gonna be coming to the church and being blessed, not only by getting the food that they need, but that they are feeling and sensing the love of Christ to even be invited to this church. We were asked at the grandparents group if we wanted to work in the nursery. That following Sunday, we began to rock the babies. However, they needed more help in the toddler room. So we went there and ended up working every Sunday at the 11 o'clock, the best thing we ever did. We're establishing relationships with the parents. We're there every Sunday, and we see the same parents bringing the same children just about every Sunday with new children being added. We love the, the children are so hungry for Jesus, and they long to feel his presence. They just, even at two years old and three years old, have such a sense of God in their life. And then they love 
the love that they get from Corey and I, that they come running to the room, we get hugs. So it's been wonderful to see how every month these children are growing in Christ. One of the most exciting things is that when we invite others to share in responsibilities that we have, it doesn't need to be every Sunday like Corey and I commit to, but it actually is maybe once a month. You can reach out and work one Sunday in the nursery. You're doing great things and helping, even in small ways. It doesn't have to be every week or every day, but just find a way to serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with singing. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a famous passage. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the app or it'll be on the screens as well. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So unpack for a moment in your mind what's going on that Isaiah, a normal human, just a regular guy gets called up and caught up into the throne room of God, the presence of God. And God is so holy and so magnificent and so unimaginable that there are these angels that they worship God, crying out, holy, holy, holy. But God is so brilliant that they can't even look at him. And so they cover their face and they cover their feet because they say, we are not worthy to be in your presence. And so this regular guy gets called up in heaven and experiences the presence of God and it changes everything. It would change the rest of his life. And I just want you to imagine for a moment being Isaiah, being called up into the throne room. Think of whatever things he was thinking about that morning, whatever issues he had, whatever problems he had that in the midst of the presence of God, everything else just disappears. That thing that he was complaining about that morning, in that moment, it just didn't matter. Why? Because of perspective. Because you get in front of God and everything else fades away. Then verse Four, it says, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He realizes how unworthy he is to be in the presence of God. Verse 6 says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And so God, we see this triune God, one God, but the Trinity said, Who will go for us? He's saying, there's a broken earth. There's an earth that needs help. I'm sending out help to it. Who should I send? And Isaiah, experiencing the presence of God, says, here I am. And now it's interesting if you have an older translation or a different translation. uh, Traditionally, that phrase is always translated as here am I. That's how NIV translates it. King James translates it that way. NASB. Here am I. Now, it's not really that different. The difference between saying, here I am and here am I. But it feels like there's a difference between those phrases. That that first phrase, here am I, is really a presentation of self, whereas here I am is just a statement of location. Sometimes in my house I say, hey, Lauren, where are you? And she says, here I am. And she's just declaring where she is. And sometimes I think that's the idea of God is looking to send somebody and we just say, well, here I am. But that's not really the fullness of what Isaiah is communicating. No, Isaiah is saying, here am I. He presents himself as an offering to God and he says, all that I have is yours. I think it's also interesting that when you say, here I am, what's in the very center? It's I. It's really easy in this life for the center of my life, the focus of my life to be me. But when you focus on here am I, it moves I away from center. And that's what God is looking for. He's looking for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, he's looking for us to present ourselves to him and say, here am I. Ultimately, what was Isaiah saying? Isaiah was saying this. He was saying, I will do something. Hey, I'll do something. God is saying, who can I send? And Isaiah says, hey, send me. I will do it. The reality is that we live in a broken world, a hurting world, a dying world. Sin separates people away from God. And Jesus is the hope for the world. And the vehicle that that hope gets to the world is the church. The church is a complicated thing because the church can be so many different things. You see, the church can be a building. When you drive by on Fairview, say, what is that? Well, that's a church. We're talking about the building. Church can also be an experience. You go to church, you experience church. Just like a movie, you're a consumer of a movie. Sometimes we can be a consumer of church. We can fall into that pattern and that habit where church is all about my taste and my experience. Most likely when you are done today, as you are making your way out to the car, there'll be some kind of a conversation where you say, what did you think? And that's not a judgment. I do the same thing. We just naturally fall into that. Hey, what did you think? Well, I liked this song. And then we kind of grade the worship. Well, that was good or that wasn't as good. I liked that moment. I didn't like that moment. It was a little long for me. We say, how was the sermon? And you'll talk about me in the car ride home. We're like, well, you know, it wasn't very good today. I would just say it's kind of a B, maybe a C. I, I've heard him do better than that. He wasn't as funny today as he normally is. And, you know, that's kind of disappointing. I brought a guest and I told him he's really funny. And then he wasn't funny at all. Like, well, that's worthless. 
That's what we can do sometimes. Church can become about our experience. You see, sometimes in church, our posture becomes this right here. We just say, all right, I'm going to watch. I'm going to experience. I'm going to let people serve me, and I'm going to naturally drift towards complaining. And there's a lot of things to complain about, and some of them are valid complaints. But the other thing that the church really is supposed to be is that church can be an identity. When Jesus leaves, Jesus tells the disciples, Jesus hears the proclamation from Peter that Jesus is the way, he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's talking about Peter. He's, he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the phrase that Peter said. Jesus is saying that on him, he will build his church. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what he's not talking about is a building. What he's not talking about is an experience. He's talking about an identity. He's talking about who we are supposed to be. You know, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that we shouldn't just attend church. Don't just attend church. We should be the church. You see, the reality is I have nothing to add to the world around me. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. When we talk about do something, I don't want you to get the false idea that I have the power to do something that radically changes the lives around me. No. But as a Christian, if I have experienced the love of Jesus, if God has transformed my heart and my life, then I'm just a beggar trying to tell another beggar that I know where to find the bread. It's my way of saying, hey, I don't have anything to give, but I know the one who does. And it's so transformed my life that I want to tell everybody around me and anybody who will listen about Jesus who changes everything. That's what it means to be the church. It's not just a building. It's not just a place to attend. It's an identity of who we are supposed to be day in and day out, when we're in this building and when we're not in this building. There was an image a year ago, June of 2022, uh, that really captured a whole lot of attention, captured the world by storm. This is the image. This is a picture of the coach, is Andrea Fuentes, that's her right here. And she is diving into the water to save an Olympian. Her name is Anita Alvarez. And so this is at the World Swim Competitions. It's synchronized swimming. It's an individual performance. And so this is a world-class swimmer who has been performing uh, her solo performance of synchronized swimming. And then at the very end, something happens. She so exhausts herself that she passes out underwater. And before she had completely sunk to the bottom, her coach recognizes that something is wrong makes a split-second decision, dives into the water, grabs her student, saves her life. Now, here's what's interesting about the story. Did you know that even in the Olympics, when the best swimmers in the world are in the water swimming, they still have lifeguards? Did you know that? Which is a part of you that's like, that's got to be the easiest job in the world. The people that you would be jumping in to save are better at swimming than you are. But that's the job. And yet, on this day, the lifeguards did not react. They didn't do their job. Why? 
I wasn't there, and I don't really know the details, but there's a part of me that wonders if the lifeguard had gotten a little bit comfortable in their job. They're probably thinking, nothing's going to go wrong. These are professional swimmers. I can just sit back and relax, and I don't really have to pay that close of attention because what am I going to do anyway? And because of that comfort, because they weren't paying attention, because they didn't see the need, because they didn't do something, they missed out on their job. You see, the coach was different. The coach was focused and paying attention. She saw a need, and she decided to do something. And church, here's what, if we take nothing else away from today, here's what I would encourage you to contemplate and to understand. It's this, it's that the world around us is in need of saving. It's drowning. Are we going to do something? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that Jesus changes everything, that we can't change ourselves, and it is by grace and grace alone what you have accomplished on the cross for our sins. God, I thank you that you are calling us as Christians to do something, to take the power of the gospel and to live it out in our lives day in and day out. And so I pray that each and every one of us would be compelled not to just sit comfortably in the chair, not to just complain about the broken world around us, but instead to do something. To in the name of Jesus, through you, through your power, through the power that comes through your Holy Spirit, that we would live lives that enact change, eternal change. God, give us the strength. Give us the vision. Help us to be like Isaiah, to present ourselves and say, here am I. Use me. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.